trying to free your mind, Nia. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins, a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, just about anything really. If you're interested in anything and everything, come along and listen and enjoy my show. Welcome to Origins, episode 48. This week's podcast is entitled, Wearing Your Dead Relatives. Some other stories we'll be looking at include, the bodies found in the tomb of the boy King Tutankhamun are twin daughters. And from the LiveScience.com, cows have a strange sixth sense. From the TheDamnInteresting.com, colour photographs from the World War I era. And also from the damninteresting.com, the Doomsday Clock. Nine medieval ships have been found in Oslo mud, and scientists say that we can see sound. From history, Stalin's mass murders were entirely rational, says a new Russian textbook praising the tyrant. And Stonehenge was hidden from the lower classes. And we'll also have a short article from Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things and a couple of articles from The Worldwide Weird. The following article comes from the entertainment.timesonline.co.uk website and it's a bit of a follow-up to an article we did in episode 45. Two fetuses found buried with Tutankhamun may have been his twin daughters, an expert has claimed. Professor Robert Connolly, an anatomist who is working with Egyptian authorities to analyse the tomb of the Egyptian pharaoh, says that preliminary tests on the mummified remains of the two stillborn babies indicate that Tutankhamun may have fathered them both. He will present the new findings at the Pharmacy and Medicine in Ancient Egypt conference at the University of Manchester today. Professor Connolly, who first studied the remains of Tutankhamun in the 60s, said, The two fetuses in the tomb of Tutankhamun could be twins, despite their very different size, and thus fit better as a single pregnancy for his young wife. This increases the likelihood of them being Tutankhamun's children. I studied one of the mummies, the larger one, back in 1979, determined the blood group data from this baby mummy, and compared it with my 1969 blood grouping of Tutankhamun. The results confirmed that this larger fetus could indeed be the daughter of Tutankhamun. Now we believe that they are twins and that they were both his children. Professor Connolly, a physical anthropologist at the University of Liverpool, said, It is a very exciting find which will not only paint a more detailed picture of this famous young king's life and death, it will also tell us more about his lineage. 
The fetuses have been stored at the Faculty of Medicine in Cairo University since the archaeologist Howard Carter discovered them in the Teenage King's Tomb on the west bank of Luxor in 1922. Egyptologists have long debated whether they were his children or if they were placed in the tomb with the symbolic purpose of allowing the famous pharaoh to live on as newborns in the afterlife. The answer to this hereditary puzzle is closer because the two fetuses are to undergo CT scans and DNA testing to determine possible diseases and their relation to Tutankhamun. The smaller fetus is about five months in gestational age and the larger fetus is estimated to be between seven and nine months. The results of the remaining tests are due in December. We are very proud to have Professor Connolly speaking at the conference and are extremely excited about his new findings, said the conference director Rosalie David of the University of Manchester's Faculty of Life Sciences. Tutankhamun is such an important figure in Egyptology. He was a fascinating character whose tomb and indeed body has given us so much information about life in ancient Egypt and it seems he will continue to do so for some time yet. More than 100 delegates from 10 countries will be attending the conference. It intends to bring together the two elements of ancient Egyptian healthcare practices, pharmacy and medicine. Cows have a strange sixth sense. And this is an article by Jeremy Sue from the www.livescience.com website. A study of Google Earth satellite images has revealed that herds of cattle tend to face in the north-south direction of Earth's magnetic lines. Staring at cows may not equal the thrill of spotting celebrities in public or rubbernecking at car accidents, but the researchers found nonetheless that our bovine friends display this strange sixth sense for direction. Their field observations of red and roe deer also showed those animals facing towards magnetic north or south. Google Earth is perfect for this kind of research because the animals are undisturbed by the observer, said Sabine Bagel, a zoologist at the University of Duisburg-Essen in Germany and co-author of the study detailed in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Wind and time of day did not offer better explanations for why 8,510 cattle in 308 locations around the world would mostly face north-south. Shadows suggested that many of the images were taken on cloudless sunny days, so Bagel's group also factored in direct ground observations of cattle herds. A strong wind or sunlight on a cold day have typically proved more than exceptions to the rule that might cause large animals to face away from magnetic north-south. The data on 2,974 deer came from direct ground observations and photos in the Czech Republic. Researchers also examined fresh beds left by resting deer in the snow, where the animals had sought shelter deep in the forest away from the wind. Both cattle and deer faced a more magnetic north-south direction rather than geographic north-south. Earth's magnetic poles do not line up perfectly with the north and south poles. Previous research has shown that animals such as birds, turtles and salmon migrate using a sense of magnetic direction and small mammals such as rodents and one bat species also have a magnetic compass. Bagal and fellow researchers became interested in seeing if larger mammals possessed a similar magnetic sense following up on co-author Hynek Berda's work on African mole rats. Our first idea was to study sleeping directions of humans, for example, when doing camping. But there are too many constraints, Bagel told Life Science. 
so the idea arose to look for other large mammals like cattle, and Hynek was fascinated when he recognised that cattle could be found on Google Earth satellite images. Google Earth's convenience also came with some downsides. The researchers had to estimate the date, time of day, temperature and wind direction, and could not distinguish between head and rear for many of the cows because of low image resolutions. However, the researchers suggest that the finding of large animals' sense of magnetic direction could raise other agricultural questions, such as whether keeping cows in barns facing east-west might affect milk production. The following article is one of three from the damninteresting.com this week, and this one was written by Alan Bellows on July 29, 2006. It's Colour Photos from the World War I Era. Colour film was non-existent in 1909 Russia, yet in that year a photographer named Sergei Mikhailovich Prokudin-Gorsky embarked on a photographic survey of his homeland and captured hundreds of photos in full vivid colour. His photographic plates were black and white, but he had developed an ingenious photographic technique which allowed him to use them to produce accurate colour images. He accomplished this with a clever camera of his own design, which took three black and white photos of a scene in rapid sequence, each through a differently coloured filter. His photographic plates were long and slender, capturing all three images onto the same plate, resulting in three monochrome images, which each had certain colour information filtered out. Sergi was then able to use a special image projector to project the three images onto a screen, each directly overlapping the others, and each through the appropriately coloured filter. The recombined projection was a full colour representation of the original scene. Each three-image series captured by the camera stored all of the colour information onto the black and white plates. All they lacked was actual tint, which the colour filters on the projector restored. Tsar Nicholas II fully supported Sergi's ambitious plan to document the Russian Empire and provided a specially equipped railroad car which enclosed a dark room for Sergi to develop his glass plates. He took hundreds of these colour photos all over Russia from 1909 to 1915. There was no means to develop colour prints at that time, but modern technology has allowed these images to be recombined in their full original colours. The US Library of Congress purchased all of Sergi's original glass negatives from his heirs in 1948, and in 2001 a beautiful exhibition was produced to showcase Sergi's photos called The Empire That Was Russia. Around that time, in 1907, the first practical colour photographic plates were introduced to the world by the Lumière brothers in France. The plates were called autochrome Lumière and they were made up of microscopic potato starch grains which were dyed orange, green and blue, sandwiched between black and white film and a piece of glass and then coated in shellac. The tiny starch grains acted as colour filters, making the film essentially a mosaic made up of many tiny pieces. Once the black and white film base was developed, the dyed starch layer, which had acted as many tiny colour filters when the photo was taken, now did the same task in reverse, giving the colour back to the underlying image. The technology was a bit crude and grainy, but it was able to capture full-colour images, which turned out looking rather impressionistic. Autochrome film was expensive, slow and rare, so it didn't see a lot of use by the general public. But when World War I broke out in 1914, the French army began photographing soldiers and scenery, and some of their photos were taken with this new colour film. As a result, a large proportion of colour photos from that time are images of French soldiers in the field. 
Because of the efforts of the French army photographers, there are beautiful colour images of soldiers in trenches, military equipment, ruined buildings and villages, among many other things. Autochrome plates age remarkably well due to their construction. So many of the originals are still in pristine condition today. Autochrome remained as the primary colour photograph medium until Kodachrome was introduced in 1935 and Ag for Colour in the following year. Aside from Kodachrome, most modern colour films are still based on the Ag for Colour technology. And also from the damninteresting.com website, another article by Alan Bellows from January 7, 2006. The Doomsday Clock There is a clock at the University of Chicago called the Doomsday Clock, whose time perpetually lingers just shy of midnight. On this clock, midnight metaphorically represents full nuclear war bringing an end to all civilization. And the clock is meant as a gauge to constantly indicate humankind's proximity to this horrific event. When it was introduced in 1947, it was set for seven minutes to midnight. Since that day, its minute hand has wandered around on the upper left quarter of the clock face inching closer to 12 when the threat of nuclear war grows and crawling away as the risk fades. It has been as close as 2 minutes to midnight in 1953 and as far as 17 minutes in 1991. If its caretakers ever set it for midnight, it will probably be the last thing they ever do. The custodians of this clock have been the men and women of the board of directors of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. The Bulletin is a publication which was founded in 1945 by many former Manhattan Project physicists. And over the years, contributors have included Albert Einstein, Edward Teller, J. Robert Oppenheimer, Carl Sagan, Werner von Braun, Al Gore, Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke to name but a few. Today, it stands at seven minutes to the hour. Whenever you're curious how near humanity is to destroying itself, you can check the status of the Doomsday Clock homepage. It's good to stay abreast of this sort of thing so that you can plan your schedule around it. And as of today, the 4th of September 2008, I've just checked the www.thebulletin.org website and the clock is now set at 5 minutes to midnight. While I'm on a roll, I might as well do the third article from the damninteresting.com website. And this is our feature story for today. Wearing Your Dead Relatives. And it was written by Cynthia Wood on January the 7th, 2006. The creation of artificial diamonds is by now a well-established process. It's been around since the 1950s, but until quite recently, the production of sizeable gem-quality diamonds was prohibitively expensive. In 
As of 2003, however, improvements in the process and new technologies have lowered costs so much that at least two US companies have started making artificial diamonds for the jewellery trade. Or at least there were two. Since there is cheap available technology for making artificial diamonds, there would not seem to be much room in the field for an exclusive hold on the market. However, one company, LifeGem, has come up with a different way to corner a clientele. Wait until they die. LifeGem holds a patent on a process for extracting carbon from cremated remains. Human or pet, they only take a few ounces of ashes, process it into graphite, and then using a high-pressure system, turn the graphite into diamonds. One or many, however the customer prefers. The original life gems were canary diamonds, yellow, but the company has since added blue to its line and is actively investigating other colours. They also offer settings so that the customer can choose to wear their loved one on a ring, brooch or necklace. Based on the customer commentary, some people are choosing to combine gems from several sources into one piece of jewellery. Mum and Dad together forever on a ring, for instance. The result is somehow reminiscent of Victorian mourning jewellery. The Victorian era saw mourning become high art, with prescribed clothing and jewellery. Ornaments, including brooches and watch fobs made from elaborately knotted hair, became a highly fashionable way of showing the bereaved's continuing attachment to their lost spouse, parent or child. Life gems are promoted in exactly this way. Their site refers to the gems as an everlasting connection to the one you have lost. While the carbon recovered from the remains is referred to as the true essence of your loved ones. While some people find the idea of wearing a piece of a dead person, however processed, thoroughly creepy, Life Gem appears to have been doing a respectable amount of business. They report steadily increasing sales since they opened their doors, and in 2004 they opened Life Gem UK. Should some suitably famous person suffer bereavement and choose this visible form of mourning, the popularity of the option could really explode. That is, after all, what happened in the original Victorian era, with the 40-year mourning of Queen Victoria for her husband, Prince Albert. So, don't be surprised if the next time you go to a funeral home, you see something that looks suspiciously like a jewellery catalogue lurking about. It just might be a pamphlet offering to let you wear your relatives forever. And from the www.ihe.com website, nine medieval ships have been found in Oslo, mud. The largest collection of antique shipwrecks ever found in Norway has been discovered under mud at the building site for a new highway tunnel in Oslo, the project's lead archaeologist said on Friday. The archaeologist, Jostein Gundersen, said at least nine wooden boats the largest of them 17 metres long, were found well-preserved nearly 400 years after they sank at Bojavika, an Oslo inlet near the new National Opera House. For us, this is a sensation, he said. There has never been a find of so many boats and in such good condition at one site in Norway. The wrecks were remarkably well preserved because they had been covered in mud and fresh water, where river waters reached the sea, he said. 
we have a fantastic opportunity to learn more about old shipbuilding techniques in the old harbours, said Gundersen of the Norwegian Maritime Museum in Oslo. He said the wrecks were believed to have sunk some time after a fire swept the wooden buildings of old Oslo in 1624. After that disaster, the Danish-Norwegian king, Christian IV, ordered the city centre moved before reconstruction started. The discovered boats were moored at the old port, which became a remote area after the city was moved. He said the boats might have been 30 or 40 years old when they sank. There is nothing to indicate that the ships were deliberately scuttled, Gunderson said. They could have sunk one by one because of sloppy mooring or poor maintenance, or maybe sank in a storm. He said the wreckage would be chartered and removed as quickly as possible, so construction of the undersea tunnel could continue. It will then take years, he said, to examine all the ship's remnants back at the museum. Gunderson said the find will help fill gaps in knowledge of vessels between Norwegian Viking ships of about 1,000 years ago and more modern vessels. And from the www.dailymail.co.uk website. Stalin's mass murders were entirely rational, says a new Russian textbook praising the tyrant. And this is by Will Stewart. Stalin acted entirely rationally in executing and imprisoning millions of people in the gulags, a controversial new Russian teaching manual claims. Fifty-five years after the Soviet dictator died, the latest guide for teachers to promote patriotism among the Russian young said he did what he did to ensure the country's modernisation. The manual, titled A History of Russia, 1900-1945, will form the basis of a new state-approved textbook for use in schools next year. It seems to follow an attempt backed by Prime Minister Vladimir Putin to re-evaluate Stalin's record in a more positive light. Critics have taken exception, however, to numerous excerpts which they say are essentially attempts to whitewash Stalin's crimes. In the West, it has been widely accepted that in the 1920s millions were shot exiled to Siberia or died of starvation after their land, homes and meagre possessions were taken to fulfil Stalin's vision of massive factory farms. In the 1930s, millions more whom he considered or suspected a threat to the USSR were executed or exiled to gulag labour camps in remote areas of Siberia or Central Asia, where many also died of disease, malnutrition and exposure. Historians believe up to 20 million people perished as a result of his actions, more than the 6 million killed during Hitler's genocide of the Jews. Now, the new teaching manual is attempting to tell a generation of Russian schoolchildren that Stalin acted rationally. One of the authors, Anatoly Utkin, is keener to promote another statistic about Stalin stressing that some 10,000 books in his library had his personal jottings and marks in them. Can you tell me of any other leader, an American president for example, who has read 10,000 books? The manual informs teachers that the great terror of the 1930s came about because Stalin did not know who would deal the next blow and for that reason he attacked every known group and movement, as well as those who were not his allies or of his mindset. It stresses to teachers that it is important to show that Stalin acted in a concrete historical situation, and that he acted entirely rationally as the guardian of a system, as a consistent supporter of reshaping the country into an industrialised state. Editor Alexander Danilov said, we are not defending Stalin, we are just exploring his personality, explaining his motives and showing what he really achieved. 
The controversial manual is produced by the country's leading schoolbook publishers, a state-supported company that was a monopoly supplier of classroom texts in the Soviet era and appears to be returning to that role. The company boasts, We are proud that we brought up generations of Soviet people and today we keep on improving our textbooks. With close links to the Kremlin, the company's website states, We remain one of the few effective instruments of national consolidation, a centre of forming and distributing Russian educational values. The teaching manual could not have been produced without the support and approval of the Russian government. Prominent Russian historian Roy Medvedev dubbed the manual a falsification. Stalin by no means acted rationally all of the time, and many of his actions damaged the country. Before World War II, he said, many in the military ranks were arrested, like my father, for example, and their children, little boys, were sent to the front. Alexander Kamensky, head of the History Department at the Russia State University for Humanities, said the manual was, sadly, a sign that teaching history in schools has become an ideological instrument. But it seems to echo Putin's remarks to a group of history teachers in June 2007, when he said, while Stalin's purges were one of the darkest periods of the country's history, others cannot be allowed to impose a feeling of guilt on us. An earlier manual called Stalin, an effective manager. And at this point I'd just like to remind you that much of the music for today's show comes from the Podsafe Music Network and they can be found at music.podshow.com And remember I do two other podcasts that you may be interested in Bizarre Bizarre and Mysteries Abound and both can be found on iTunes or Podcast Alley or wherever you found the feed. And if you do wish to provide some feedback for the shows, that can be done through iTunes or Podcast Alley or wherever you found the feed, of course. And if you do happen to visit the Podcast Alley website, it would be good if you could vote for these podcasts as it does help to raise the profile of them on that website, which is a source of many of our downloads. And just a brief reminder that I'm going to be doing a live show in the near future at TalkShoe, which is www.talkshoe.com, and it's going to be called Paul Rex Live. I haven't established the date yet, as the time of broadcast is going to be in the morning here in Australia, and I have to tie it in with my work, which is a casual position, and unfortunately changes from day to day. So once I get a time where I know I'm going to be free for a few days, I'll announce the date, and hopefully you can come along and join in. It will be US time and based on East Coast because TalkShoe is New York and most of our downloads do come from the United States. The next article comes from the telegraph.co.uk website and it's from Archaeology. Stonehenge was hidden from lower classes. Archaeologists have uncovered the remains of what they believe to be a 20-foot fence designed to screen Stonehenge from the view of unworthy Stone Age Britons. The wooden construction extended nearly two miles across the Salisbury Plain more than 5,000 years ago and would have served to shield the sacred site from the prying eyes of ordinary lower-class locals. Trenches have been dug around the monument, tracing the course of the fence which meanders around the stone circle. The DIGS co-director, Dr Josh Pollard of Bristol University, said the construction must have taken a lot of manpower. The palisade is an open structure, which would not have been defensive and was too high to be practical for controlling livestock. 
And so, like everything else in this ceremonial landscape, we have to believe it must have had a religious significance. The most plausible explanation is that it was built at huge cost to the community to screen the environs of Stonehenge from view. Basically, we think it was to keep the lower classes from seeing exactly what their rulers and the priestly class were doing. Mike Pitts, editor of British Archaeology magazine and author of the book Henge World, said, This is a fantastic insight into what the landscape would have looked like. This huge wooden palisade would have sneaked across the landscape, blotting out views to Stonehenge from one side. The other side was a ceremonial route to the Henge from the River Avon and would have been shielded by the contours. The palisade would have heightened the mystery of whatever ceremonies were performed and it would have endowed those who were privy to those secrets with more power and prestige. In modern terms, you had to be invited or have a ticket to get in. And from Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things, we're continuing with the superstition theme. This time it's Umbrella Indoors, 18th Century England. Bad luck superstitions surrounding the umbrella began with the Egyptians, who imparted their intricately designed umbrellas of papyrus and peacock feathers with religious significance. These early umbrellas were never intended to protect against rain, which was rare and a blessing in Arab Egypt, but served as sunshades in the blistering heat of the day. The Egyptians believed that the canopy of the sky was formed by the body of the celestial goddess, Nut. With only her toes and fingertips touching the earth, her torso spanned the planet like a vast umbrella. Man-made umbrellas were regarded as a small-scale, earthly embodiment of nut and suitable only to be held above the heads of nobility. The shade cast by an umbrella outdoors was sacred, and for a commoner to even accidentally step into what was considered sacrilegious, a harbinger of bad luck. This belief was reversed by the Babylonians, who deemed it an honour to have even a footfall into the umbria of the king's sunshade. Folklorists claim that the superstitious belief that opening an umbrella indoors augurs misfortune has a more recent and utilitarian origin. In 18th century London, when metal-spoked waterproof umbrellas began to be a common rainy day sight, their stiff, clumsy spring mechanisms made them veritable hazards to open indoors. A rigidly spoked umbrella, opening suddenly in a small room, could seriously injure an adult or a child, or shatter a frangible object. Even a minor accident could provoke unpleasant words or a serious quarrel, themselves strokes of bad luck in a family or among friends. Thus, the superstition arose as a deterrent to opening an umbrella indoors. Today, with the ubiquitousness of radio, television and newspaper weather forecasts, the umbrella superstition has again been altered. No longer is it really considered a bad luck omen to open an umbrella indoors, though it still presents a danger. Rather, on a morning when rain is in the forecast, one superstitious way to assure dry skies throughout the day is to set off for work toting an umbrella. On the other hand, to chance leaving the umbrella at home guarantees getting caught in a downpour. Subtle, unobtrusive and even commonplace, superstitious beliefs infiltrate our everyday conversations and actions.
And from the LiveScience.com health website, scientists say we can see sound. And this is a story by Robin Nixon. Turning conventional neuroscience on its head, new research suggests the human visual system processes sound and helps us see. Here's the basics of what was Neuroscience 101. The auditory system records sound, while the visual system focuses, well, on the visuals, and never do they meet. Instead, a higher cognitive producer, like the brain's superior colliculus, uses these separate inputs to create our cinematic experiences. The textbook rewrite. The brain can, if it must, directly use sound to see and light to hear. The study was published last week in the journal BMC Neuroscience. Researchers trained monkeys to locate a light flashed on a screen. When the light was very bright, they easily found it. When it was dim, it took a long time. But if a dim light made a brief sound, the monkeys found it in no time. Too quickly, in fact, that can be explained by the old theories. Recordings from 49 neurons, responsible for the earliest stages of visual processing, researchers found activation that mirrored the behaviour. That is, when the sound was played, the neurons reacted as if there had been a stronger light, at a speed that can only be explained by a direct connection between the ear and eye-brain regions, said researcher Yi Wang of the University of Texas in Houston. The study presents the first evidence that a sensory cell can possess an alternative sensation, said head researcher Pascal Baron of the University Paul Sabatier in Toulouse, France, who discovered a contender for the anatomical connection in 2002. The discovery likely explains the tremendously quick reactions of most animals, including humans, to stimuli that cue multiple senses, such as a rustling tiger or a honking bus. Especially in the corners of the visual field where eyesight is poor, the ears take up the slack and stimulate the visual system, Baron said. An extra benefit, Wang explained, is the early visual system spatial precision, something higher brain regions fudge in favour of prioritising our central gaze. By sending sound inputs directly to our image processor, the auditory system can avoid playing telephone with time-sensitive information. The discovery is likely unrelated to the rare experience of synesthesia, a bizarre condition experienced by a few people who can feel, hear and taste colours. In synesthesia, for example, more complicated sensations combine at later stages of brain processing, so that just the mention of a colour, a letter or a shape can automatically trigger the perception of a certain note. What most excites Baron about the new findings is the potential for cortical plasticity in sensory areas. For example, the blind by definition do not use the visual system to see, but they can, this research suggests, use it to hear. This may explain how blind people develop such advanced hearing skills and similarly why the deaf often possess superior sight, said Baron. The primary visual system is also directly activated by touch, perhaps helping us slap that mosquito before it stings. Hello. 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 Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. And to finish this podcast, some articles from the Worldwide Weird. Wednesday, September 3, 2008. Want to get rid of your goldfish? Swiss owners who have been flushing them down the toilet, still alive, must now find other methods after strict new animal protection laws took effect. Instead, a fish must be first knocked out and then killed 
before its body can be disposed of. Tuesday, September 2, 2008. British supermarket chain Tesco has reportedly bowed to pressure from the Plain English campaign and scrapped signs reading, 10 items or less. Critics say the sign should have read, 10 items or fewer. New signs will say, up to 10 items, thereby avoiding a grammatical debate. And some new articles just in today. Alleged credit card thief signs name on receipts. Iowa City, Iowa. Iowa City Police say they didn't have much trouble finding a man accused of using a stolen credit card. He signed his own name to the receipts. Police in Port St. Lucie, Florida, are on the lookout for a cross-dressing man who snatched a 74-year-old woman's purse. As if that weren't odd enough, they're depending on a strange clue. The suspect left behind a condom filled with water he had been using as a fake breast. The woman said she believed the thief followed her while shopping. A witness told investigators he was wearing a short denim skirt and a black tube top and fled in a silver car with two other male cross-dressers. Police are processing the condom for fingerprints and DNA evidence. And from Berlin, Germany. A naked German hiker has vowed to carry on rambling in the nude despite spending 10 days in jail for breaking public nudity laws. Thomas Kranig, a spokesman for the administrative court in Arnsbach, said Siegfried Grofert went to jail because he refused to pay a fine of 500 euros assessed for violating the public nudity code. Grofert, a janitor, told a local German newspaper he planned to continue campaigning for the right to partake in organised all-natural hikes despite his troubles with the law. Naked hiking has gained a following since the German Society of Nudists joined the German Sports Association. Nude bathing is accepted and allowed in parts of Germany, especially on designated beaches on the Baltic Sea coast, but naked joggers have been fined in the past for running through forests wearing nothing but socks and shoes. And finally, while we're on the subject of nudity... Athens Clark Police have arrested a woman who they said started mooning motorists after she received a ticket for jaywalking. An officer stopped the 23-year-old woman and a friend at about 1.10am on Saturday after they walked diagonally across the intersection in downtown Athens. Police said both women had been drinking and were upset and disorderly as the officer began writing them tickets for not crossing in a crosswalk. Police said after getting the citation, the Covington woman walked across Clayton Street and lifted her skirt, then walked to the middle of Jackson Street and did it again, walking around while shaking her buttocks in front of oncoming traffic. The officer noted in his report that the woman used the crosswalks while crossing the street to expose herself. She was arrested for misdemeanour, public indecency. And with that story, that concludes episode 48 of Origins. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and looking forward to meeting everyone again in episode 49. And at least today we've learnt something. Jaywalking is not all that it's cracked up to be. Now gather round now. Sing along if you know the words.
Texas. I got a major 